0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben
1: and I'm Sarah.
0: Thank you all for listening. How are you doing Sarah?
1: Getting through the anxieties about The COVID-19 virus.
0: Yeah, you've got um, some anxiety about the end of the world. And I think that's understandable. Yes. But I think we should all take comfort in the fact that as we self-isolate and we practice social distancing and we wall ourselves off from any and all human contact, there are a few activities that we can still enjoy. One of those is watching old movies, and another is listening to podcasts. So Scream Scene is still the ideal form of communication and entertainment heading forward into the new post-apocalyptic wasteland. So I think it's just important that we all take a deep breath, and we thank everyone for listening to the show.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show.
0: And we all just take some solace and comfort in this worldwide community of creatures of the night that we have formed. All these people who have never had to be in the same room to be part of the same community.
1: Yeah, that's that's the future right there. Mm-hmm. Never meeting anyone, but mm-hmm. knowing them in your heart. Yes, <laughs> and part of knowing everyone in your heart is knowing what movie we are watching this week ben what what what's going on?
0: All right, Sarah. Well, today we are watching the Queen of Spades from nineteen
1: forty nine I was going to say we just watched this.
0: Yes, we watched Pico Dama from 1916 in one of our insert episodes that has just recently gone up. Uh, but in terms of numerical episodes, the previous episode was The Monkey's Paw from 1948. Uh, and this week we are watching The Queen of Spades from 1949. A, I wouldn't say it's a remake of the 1916 film. It's more of just a, another adaptation of the source material which is the short story Pico Bayadama, by Alexander Pushkin uh, if you heard our episode 3b that covered the 1916 film uh, you'll know the background information already but if you are listening to the episodes in numerical order on your playlist uh, you may have missed that or you may just not remember uh, because there's a so wide much. there's a wide gap between 3b and hundred Fifty-two.
1: Yes. Also, if you listened to it last week when it was uploaded, a week is a long time. A week true. is like, it feels like a year.
0: Yes, that's true. Enough
1: stuff happens. That yeah, it it's so 2020.
0: Long. Every week is a year. Every day, a month. Yes. Every minute of your life, another century, passing by in a flash of an eye.
1: Like sand through your hands.
0: Exactly. So, let's review... Uh, some of the background information on the source material here.
1: So our author is Alexander Pushkin. He was born in 1799 into a Russian noble family. And this protected him a little bit from the rest of uh, Russia and poverty. Mm -hmm. So he was able to foster a love of writing. He published his first poem at 15 and just kind of went on from there. He wrote a little bit of everything, um, whether that was poetry, longer poetry, like a lyrical novel, since novels didn't exist at the time, uh, at least as we know them today. Um, he wrote dramatic plays, short stories. Um, he wrote everything. Mm-hmm. While he was in a university called the Sardskoi Silo Lyceum, um, he was very attracted to the Romantics as well as realistic type of literature, which is kind of a unique blend, because romantics are not very realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely a lot of literature and content that came out of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So when he graduated, he wrote and recited this poem, Ode to Liberty, and um, that didn't look favorably upon monarchy. So he got into some hot water with authorities and that followed him throughout his life, so in between exiles, house rests, and periods of not being allowed to publish, he would find ways of getting his content out there. Because of this Western European influence in his own work, he's kind of credited for bringing a lot of external influences into Russian literature mm-hmm. and solidifying them, because he wrote, like, every type of content. Yeah. And because of that, as well as his unique style and use of language, leads him to be described as the father of Russian literature. I think what's also unique about Pushkin is um, he's bringing in these external influences, making them kind of Russian, and putting them out into Russia, but his work is also going past Russia's borders and influencing Western European people, like, for example, Henry James, who is the creator of the novel, as we know it today, hmm. um, as well as many others. So, so he's notable because he's considered the father of Russian literature, but he's also notable because, you know, Russia has always been a little isolationist and difficult to have, like, cross-cultural pollination.
0: Mm. But
1: Pushkin allowed that, sure. at least in the time that he was alive. Sure. Part of this is the um, inspiration he provided to other notable Russian figures. For example, a lot of his work inspired operas from Russian composers. Tchaikovsky, for example, adapted Pushkin's lyrical novel Eugene Onegin into an opera in 1879 and Queen of Spades in 1890, both of which were so popular that outside of Russia they became more popular than Pushkin's original work, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. We probably would have seen a lot more influence and cross-pollination thanks to Pushkin if he had not died at age 37, um, which is fairly young. He died in 1837 from a gunshot wound to the stomach from a duel with his brother-in-law who was trying to get with his wife. Yep. Yep. So that, there's a bit more detail about that in um, episode 3B, but that's Pushkin.
0: So many lives cut short. By duels. It's really a shame.
1: Yeah. Makes you wonder why they went on for so long.
0: <laughs> Dueling?
1: Yeah. Now we get things out in a more civilized way by calling each other trolls and other rude names over Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Much court more of, civilized. Court of public opinion. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The short story, The Queen of Spades, follows a man named Herman who is an engineer in the Imperial Russian Army.
0: But he is German.
1: He is German.
0: Herman the German.
1: Herman the German. Uh, In the 1916 adaptation, his name in the intertitles is German. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know. In all of the synopses of the movie, they say Herman. So I don't know.
0: Herman the German.
1: Herman the German. Um, At least in the short story, his name was Herman. A few of his fellow officers gamble, and he watches. He doesn't participate. And one of his friends shares the story of his grandmother, who is now an elderly countess. Um, She uh, won back her fortune when she was young through a game of Pharaoh, which is a card game where you bet and, you know, Mm -hmm. bet for cards and... Yep, gambling. Gambling. Um, And she won... (laughs) She won back her fortune... Through the secret of the three winning cards, a secret that she learned from Count St. Germain, a real-life figure who you could basically just characterize as 1700's Alistair Crowley. hmm Now, Herman is not a gambler, because he doesn't have money, but he becomes obsessed with this story and what this three-card secret is, because if there's a surefire way to win and get money, like, then he's not technically gambling. And uh, can get rich real quick. Yes. So Herman seeks out this countess, who is now in her late 80s, and he gains entry to her house by writing love letters to her young ward, Lies of Once inside the house, he confronts the countess and demands the three-card secret, who tries to explain to Herman, it was just a story, it was just a joke, like, this isn't real. But he won't listen, and he pulls a gun and confronts her again, like, you better tell me the secret. And she dies of fright because she's in her 80s. Herman later attends the funeral, and he swears that the countess's eyes keep looking at him, because it's an open casket. That night, her ghost appears to Herman and tells him that the secret of the three cards are to bet on three, seven, and ace. She tells him to gamble only once each night. And in exchange for telling him the secret, Herman has to marry Liza Vieta. Because without the Countess, Liza Vieta is kind of broke. She's just a ward. Yeah. So Herman goes to this high-stakes gambling den. The first night, he bets on the three of spades, and he wins. And the second night, he bets on the seven of spades, and he wins again. So third night, he's super confident. He takes all the money he has, and he puts it down. and He's like, cool, I'm going to bet on the ace. But when the cards are shown, he realizes that he accidentally bet on the Queen of Spades and has lost everything. And upon closer inspection on the card, the Queen of Spades, the Queen resembles the Countess and winks at him. And he goes mad for after having lost his entire fortune. We get a little epilogue at the end where um, Pushkin explains that Lezaviera went on to get happily married to a state official, so she got a happy ending, she's okay, but Herman is in an asylum, and just keeps repeating the words, three, seven, ace, three, seven, queen. The
0: 1916 movie followed this plot outline pretty beat for beat. Yes. Um, The thing that became apparent when it was expanded out to a movie is that it sort of gave you time to like question people's motivations mm-hmm. in the story a bit more, whereas like in a short story, you're just kind of along for the ride and you can the content's short enough that you can just kind of accept some things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this new version, which is you know a sound feature and is an hour and a half, addresses some of like these issues of like motivation and character arc and that sort of thing.
1: And pacing as well, because the 1916 one dramatizes uh, when the Countess is young and loses her fortune and then wins it back, Mm -hmm. um, as well as a dream sequence for her goofing off with a, a lover. They did that to kind of expand it so it was a full hour, but now that this film is an hour and a half, I'm curious how they're going to handle that.
0: Yes, exactly. So the story of the production of this version of the Queen of Spades begins with its producer, Anatoly de Gruenwald. Born in St. Petersburg in 1910, he was the son of Konstantin de Gruenwald, a diplomat in the service to the Tsar of Russia. His family was forced to flee when the Bolshevik Revolution began in 1917. He attended Cambridge and the University of Paris, And after graduation, he found employment as a script reader at Gamont British. He began writing screenplays in 1938, and after World War II, he started his own production company, uh, producing and writing his own films, uh, including acclaimed hits like The Way to the Stars in 1945, The Winslow Boy in 1948, and The Holly and the Ivy in 1952. Grunewald collaborated on the adaptation of Queen of Spades with writer Rodney Ackland, a Jewish-British playwright who was born in Essex in 1908 under the name Normand Ackland Bernstein. He changed his name when his professional career began, and he started out as a stage actor at the age of 16. He was in starring roles by 1926, and he began writing his own plays to star in in the early 1930s. He broke into screenwriting thanks to being noticed as an actor by Alfred Hitchcock. He wrote a number of screenplays throughout the 1940s, including the Oscar-nominated screenplay of 49th Parallel in 1941. Originally, Ackland was also supposed to direct Queen of Spades, which would have been his directorial debut, but he had a falling out with Gruenwald as well as the film star Anton Walbrook over the vision for the film, which led to Ackland's dismissal. Queen of Spades would be Ackland's final film work. His 1952 play, The Pink Room, was a major flop. And Ackland retreated from creative work until 1988, when he staged a new play called Absolute Hell, which was very successful and adapted by the BBC in 1999, starring Dame Judi Dench. Ackland passed away the same year.
1: So he went... Into hiding. Mm -hmm. He became a recluse Mm -hmm. after a series of flops Mm -hmm. and then suddenly came back several, like, 30 years later Mm -hmm. with a big hit. Mm -hmm. Are we sure he's not, like, related to the Phantom (laughs) or anything like that?
0: Pretty sure. Now, Anton Walbrook, who stars in this film as Herman the German, uh, we've seen him before. He was the lead as Baldwin. In the 1935 version of The Student of Prague, although he appeared in that film under his birth name, Adolf Wolbrook. Now, uh, Wolbrook was Jewish and gay, so in 1936 he fled Germany and settled in England to continue his film career, changing his name to Anton Walbrook in the process. In 1940... He had the lead role in the original British film version of Gaslight, directed by Thorold Dickinson, and in 1948, he was the villain in the classic British film The Red Shoes. After Rodney Ackland was removed as director of Queen of Spades, Walbrook requested that Gruenwald replace him with Thorold Dickinson, whom Walbrook had had such a good working relationship with on Gaslight. Walbrook retired from film acting in the late 1950s and returned to West Germany, where he passed away in 1967. Thorold Dickinson was born in Bristol in 1903 to a religious family. He dropped out of his theology courses at Oxford, however, when his interest in the film industry ended up eclipsing any of his other interests.
1: (laughs) Just became obsessed.
0: Pretty much. Uh, He traveled to France to observe the inner workings of the French film industry. He traveled to America to observe the way that the American film industry transitioned from silent to sound. He was a member of the London Film Society and brought the films of Sergei Eisenstein to Britain. So he was a real big cinephile.
1: You you can say geek.
0: (laughs) He broke into the industry as a film editor in the late 1920s, and he started directing in 1934 with the film Javahead when the original director became ill.
1: Jabba Head is about coffee. Someone who's just totally obsessed with coffee.
0: I hope. His first solo film as a director was The High Command in 1937, and in 1940 he directed Gaslight. But the original version, his version, was suppressed for many years when MGM produced their American remake in 1944.
1: Yeah, MGM has a history of doing that. Yeah. Because they're real dicks.
0: Mm-hmm. So when Walbrook recommended Dickinson to direct The Queen of Spades, Grunwald approached him on Monday, Dickinson read the Pushkin short story on Tuesday, he read the screenplay on Wednesday, and he was in the studio for the first day of shooting on Saturday. Wow. Yeah, they really cut it to the wire getting a new director when they fired Ackland in terms of like... Pre production time. Dickinson decided to throw caution to the wind with this film and give it a bold visual panache and emotional intensity that critics of the time thought was very un British.
1: (laughs) British films like to be like muted or like.
0: A step removed. A
1: step removed, yeah. Having some distance. Unless you have Todd Slaughter films where it's definitely more melodramatic, but it's kind of more goofy Yeah, there still
0: isn't like a lot of emotional realism going on, you know?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Dickinson continued to direct films through the 1950s before transitioning to teaching in the 1960s, starting the film studies department at the University of London and becoming the first professor of film studies in the United Kingdom. He passed away in 1984.
1: Cool. He sounds like a really cool guy.
0: Yeah. Portraying the role of the elderly countess in this film is Dame Edith Evans, she was born in London in 1888, and she made her acting debut in 1910 with an amateur Shakespeare company, and was acting professionally by 1912. In 1915 and 1917, she appeared in two silent films, but otherwise she stuck to stage acting. Her star-making turn came in 1924 in the play The Way of the World, and she began to be spoken of at that time as the greatest living English actress. Damn. She continued acting through the 1930s, sort of aging up with her roles. Um, Sometime in the 40s, she actually appeared in The Way of the World again, but in one of the roles of, like, an elderly lady who, like, is manipulating events instead of as, like, the young ingenue role she refused to play roles whose characters she could not empathize with or understand. So for example, uh, she refused to play Lady Macbeth because she didn't understand a character who was that like broadly evil. Okay. Um, but she was fine with playing like really snooty bitch, rich ladies Because she felt like she understood those characters. So it wasn't necessarily, like, (laughs) that she wouldn't play bad people or that she wouldn't play characters she didn't like. She just had to be able to, like, get where they were coming from. Sure. But what this generally tended to mean is that she preferred comic roles to tragic roles. Because she could never really get a handle on, like, the way that tragic characters' flaws, like, inevitably lead them to doom. Because she would read the scripts and be like, why would you do something that stupid, though?
1: Because you're on a road that you can't step off. Can't step off.
0: Right. But she'd be there being like, yeah, but I would just step off the road, though. In 1948, she returned to film acting, and she began acting on film and on stage regularly. She was nominated for an Oscar in 1964, 1965, and 1968. And she passed away in 1976 at age 88.
1: Good run. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The role of Liza in this version is played by 34-year-old actress Yvonne Mitchell, who is an accomplished stage actress, but is making her film debut here. Also featured in the film is Ronald Howard, who is the son of famous actor and spy Leslie Howard, who had been shot down uh, in his spy plane by the Germans in 1943. Uh, also appearing in the cast is Anthony Dawson, who might be best known to film fans for his roles in Dial in for Murder from 1954 and Dr. No in 1962. The Queen of Spades was produced by the Associated British Picture Corporation.
1: Sure. Which Logical was, name. Right.
0: Which was one half of the British film duopoly of the time with the Rank Organization. So yeah. you were either Rank or you were Associated British Picture Corporation. Um... Associated British Picture Corporation was founded as British International Pictures when John Maxwell, the owner of Elstree Studios, bought out the ABC Cinemas chain, uh, which then produced a company that had, therefore, both, like, producing and exhibiting. The company became fully vertically integrated with distribution when it purchased the British division of Pathé in 1933. The company's founder, John Maxwell, passed away in 1940, and his widow sold 40% of the studio to Warner Brothers, although the company did retain a degree of independence. From 1949 to 1958, the head of production was Robert Clark, who instituted a policy that all films must be based on pre-existing properties, like plays or books, um, that already have, like, proven market success. No original ideas. Buddy... So for anyone out there who's like, oh, Hollywood today, there's no original movies, it's all remakes and sequels, <laughs> like, my dude, it's always been like that. The film was shot at ABPC's Wellwind Studios, which was unfortunately not a great shooting location. Uh, It was sort of secondary to Elstree Studios, but Elstree Studios had been, like, heavily used for the war effort as, like, a factory and warehouse. So it was getting, and for, like, propaganda films. So it was still in the process of being, like, demilitarized. Um, (laughs) Sure. Wellwyn Studios, however, was unfortunately located next door to a factory that had, like, a whistle that went off at 5 p.m. when it was, like, time for people to get off work and a mainline railway that had trains that went by regularly. And the building was not very well soundproofed. Yeah. So they had to have lookouts on the roof to alert the crew when a train was coming so they would stop filming, wait for the train to pass, and then resume. The sets and costumes for the film were designed by Oliver Massell, who was an acclaimed artist and set decorator, Uh, Massell had started out as a portrait painter, but throughout his career he expanded into costumes and sets for theater, uh, then film, then designing camouflage for pillboxes in World War II, which apparently he really enjoyed because he felt it let him let loose. Uh, And then from there he designed hotel suites and retail spaces. Finally, Homes in the Caribbean, developing a shade of paint called Massel Green, which is still considered to be, like, quintessentially tropical.
1: What a neat guy. Yeah. Huh.
0: The film was shot by veteran Czech cinematographer Otto Heller, who would go on to shoot Richard III for Laurence Olivier in 1955 and Alfie in 1966. The Queen of Spades was released March 16, 1949 in the United Kingdom. It was critically acclaimed, it was nominated for a BAFTA for Best British Film, and it made £107,000 at the box office, which would be about $6.5 million in today's Canadian dollar.
1: So, big hit. Yes. Big production.
0: Yeah. Uh, Got a great review from the critics. However... For a very long time, the film was actually considered to be a lost film. Oh. Which may explain why I had never heard of it before I started doing research for like what was coming up next for the show. Uh, I just had never heard of this movie, never heard of the story it was based on. Nothing. Uh, turns out, it was rediscovered in 2009, and re-released in 2010. Uh, once again, garnering high critical praise. Wes Anderson has called it the sixth greatest british film of all time and i wonder
1: what the other five are yeah
0: and martin scorsese said it was one of the few true classics of supernatural cinema and that thorold dickinson was a uniquely talented passionate artist it is now available in a fully restored blu-ray from kino lorber
1: great uh well folks hopefully you can find a copy to watch along with You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Queen of Spades from 1949, directed by Thorold Dickinson.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Queen of Spades from 1949, directed by Therald Dickinson.
0: Now, if I could peel back the curtain for just a moment. No,
1: pay no attention to the man behind the curtain.
0: We haven't just finished watching The Queen of Spades. We finished watching The Queen of Spades like four days ago, and...
1: Four days? Yeah. Oh, God.
0: Um... And it's just that you see, listeners, uh, Sarah started her new job.
1: Right in the middle of a pandemic.
0: (laughs) Yes. And so things sort of got a little busy very suddenly because not only did Sarah have to go to work, but then Sarah had to stop going to work and start working from home. And I also could not continue to go to my place of work because it closed down. And things just, like, changed very suddenly and got really weird and busy in unexpected ways. And we didn't really have time to record the second half of this episode until now. So if we're a little bit foggier on the movie than we sometimes are, that's, that's why. We've, we've, we've got our notes. We took notes after watching the movie, like we always do. We've got our notes in front of us, and we're going to be you know, doing our best to keep up the usual level of quality. But, it, it, you know, just so that transparency is important.
1: Absolutely. Transparent as a ghost.
0: Yes, like the ghost in this movie.
1: I did enjoy this movie. Yes. Yeah, it is very good. Clearly a lot of time and effort and talent went into it. What did you think?
0: Oh, I thought this was great. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, It's a really high-class movie.
1: Well, it is British.
0: Sure, but, like, we saw Monkey's Paw, like, two weeks ago, and that was... (laughs) Not what I would consider high class at all. Fair enough. This was very close to the short story still, um, but it did have some key differences. uh, A lot of it in the ways that it expanded the plot out to feature length. Uh, I think it was maybe more successful at doing that than the 1916 version. Um, So why don't we give a plot summary, uh, just to go through sort of what happens in this version of the movie and then uh, launch into the discussion.
1: Sounds good. All right. So cast your your mind's eye back to 1806 in St. Petersburg, Russia. Captain of the Engineer Military Corps, German Suverin, is a miser with ambition.
0: Now that it's a sound film, we know that his name is pronounced German. It is definitely spelt Herman, but that explains why the subtitles in the silent version spelt it German, because it's like a hard H, which I didn't know was a thing.
1: Russia, what do you know? As I said, he's captain, but he can't rise higher in the ranks unless he has money or he knows someone. He bitterly watches his fellow officers, who are also rich and noble, as they gamble. We learn that in the card game they're playing which is like pharaoh still, uh, the Queen of Spades is considered bad luck. He overhears the story of a fellow officer talking about his grandmother, Countess Renovskaya, and how when she was young, she needed money, and Count St. Germain gave her the three-card secret at the cost of her soul. And the idea of gambling without fear of losing was put in German's head. Now, In the 1916 version, we see uh, the Countess losing at gambling. In the 1949 version, the Countess is in an unhappy marriage, and uh, she gets a little buddy-buddy with someone she meets at a party. She really should do background checks because afterwards, he's like, I'm going to steal all your money, and you can't do anything because you can't tell anyone about this little affair we had.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the Countess did sleep around in the 1916 version and was, like, unhappy in her marriage, but that wasn't what caused her need for money in that version.
1: Back in 1806, Gehrman stumbles upon a creepy old bookstore uh, (laughs) run by a creepy old man, and he comes across a book written by Count St. Germain that corroborates the Countess's story. He also stumbles upon the Countess's house, as he was walking home, and he sees the young ward, Liza Vieta, and comes up with a plan to seduce her for access to the house. Liza, meanwhile, feels very trapped in the house with the old, cruel countess, and she's kind of likened to being like a a pretty bird trapped in a cage. She meets Officer Andre, who is a colleague of German's, and while Andre falls for Liza, she herself is caught up with the romance of Gurman. Mm-hmm. Andre finds out about this romance. He confronts Gurman, but to no avail. So he goes to Liza and warn her, Gurman's kind of an asshole. You don't really want to be with him. But it's too late. She's already fallen for Gurman and has helped him get access to the house. Now, Gurman is supposed to hide in, like, the sewing room and wait for Liza. He actually hides in the countess's bedroom and confronts her late one night to give him the three-card secret. And she refuses to speak. German pushes and pushes, and finally brandishes a pistol! And she dies of fright, because she's 80. Like, very, very old. She's older than 80. I think they, like, joke that she's over 100. German, in shock, goes to Liza tries to explain that he didn't mean for her to die, the pistol wasn't even loaded, and he begins rambling to himself about how the Countess actually deserved to die for not telling him the secret. Liza, meanwhile, has realized that he's been lying about the romance, but she hates him even more so for being a murderer. German later attends the Countess's funeral, still frustrated that she didn't give up her secret, and we get this really neat, like, moment where, um, it's a, an open casket. We see that her eyes are closed, and when German goes to, like, pay his respects, he, her eyes are, like, staring at him in the same way that they were when she died. It's kind of, uh, kind of spooky. That night, her spirit haunts him and gives him the secret of the three cards to bet on the three, the seven, and then the ace in succession. But... He must marry Liza. So the next day, German goes to Liza and it's like, Hey, babe, let's get married. And she's like, You're a fucking murderer. Go away. And he's like, You'll pay. You'll see. You'll all come crawling back like worms. And then I'll step on you worms. He's a little mad. <laughs>
0: You'll look up and shout, Save us. And I'll look down and whisper, No.
1: Yeah. Liza is running away from this madman and runs into Andre, who uh, goes to scare off German, but he's already wandered off. And this is when Liza tells him that German is a murderer. When German comes to the gambling den, Andre confronts him. And there's going to be a duel! It's time to duel! But first, a card game. German has taken out his entire life savings. 47,000 rubles so he bets that and Andre you know writes him a, an iou he doesn't carry that cash all the time and puts it in german plays the 3 wins so he bets his 94,000 rubles plays the 7 wins and now like he he, he, he puts it all back in 188,000 rubles um, and german's just like holy Fuck. Holy fuck. This is more money I've ever seen in my life. Holy fuck. And he's getting ready to play the ace of spades in his hand, which also happens to be right next to the queen of spades in his hands. And he plays the card. Oh no. It's it's the queen. And he go like, "Oh, he goes mad not like terrorizing but just like oh my he God. goes into
0: like shock
1: what no no all that no ben all that money ben all that money
0: it's like when your uh your computer crashes and you realize you haven't saved your work all day
1: yeah yeah your stomach just kind of drops uh-huh. and your heart freezes uh-huh we don't get any kind of shot on the card with it being the Countess's face. During this whole sequence, we do kind of hear her voice reminding German about, like, which cards to play. But as German goes mad, he himself is repeating three, seven, ace, three, seven, queen. Um, and it's pretty chilling.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's like, um, three, seven, ace? Three seven Queen?
1: Yeah. He is escorted out by Andre, presumably to an asylum. Cut to Andre and Liza are married The End. Yep. Yeah.
0: So first things first, I think this movie has great cinematography. Yeah. Um spectacular lighting, camera movement, uh framing one thing that I noticed in particular is the movie has a consistent use of mirrors as a visual motif. Um, and I'm not sure, to be honest, if that signifies anything in particular. Um, you know, if there's a theme of doubling that we should be looking for. It's just something cool that kind of makes it so that the film's every moment has some kind of like visually interesting element. As you're watching the movie, there's a lot of shots in this movie where like people start walking towards the camera and then you realize you're actually looking in a mirror that they're walking towards and they like walk into shot from like another part of frame.
1: Um, we can also call it showing off.
0: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But it means that like there's always something cool to be looking at when you're watching this movie.
1: Absolutely. I agree with what you're saying. Uh, well shot, well acted, um lots of money, time and effort put into this movie. There were different moments through the film where it was being intentionally and then also unintentionally funny. Hmm. You know, adding a little in a little bit of comedic relief like that uh one like general or like soldier who who meets the grandmother. He's like a real butt. He's like, "Yeah, you won't you don't have much time left."
0: Oh, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the young guy who his like old like mom or grandmother or whoever is trying to like introduce him to the Countess to like have him move up in society. And he's just kind of adult and doesn't know how to. Yeah. Yeah. For sure.
1: So there, there are moments of of comedy, but the film is consistent in how it constructs a mood and a tone that those moments of comedy never took me out of the movie.
0: Yeah. They're comic relief. It's not, about, like...
1: Comedic scene in between two horror scenes.
0: Right. Or and, and it's and it's not about, like, trying to downplay the very, like, bleak atmosphere of the story, you know, and be like, oh, but actually things are funny, though. Don't get too sad. Yeah. You know, or whatever. Yeah. In addition to having really great cinematography, um, this movie has really impeccable sound design. I yeah. think this movie is a really great example to show people of how invisible sound work can be but yet still integral to the storytelling because so the the countess uh she is like in her mid to late 80s and yet when she goes out like she insists on still wearing the kind of gowns that she wore in her 20s she insists on wearing like the big tall powdered wigs that she wore in her 20s you know really still getting dolled up but you know obviously she's like 80 something she can't really carry herself the same way. So she walks with a cane, but she has these big giant hoop skirts. So as she walks, she like has the cane and then she kind of like is like shuffling and dragging the skirts behind her. And that telltale tap shuffle of the Countess becomes a major signifier of her ghost when her ghost comes to haunt Garmin because the ghost is invisible. We don't see her. We just hear That she's approaching because we hear that same tap shuffle uh, in that scene.
1: The film also does really cool sound stuff early in the film with the flashback to the Countess um, going to Count St. Germain. So she's been given like a card to go see him, and when she goes to his mansion, it is spooky AF.
0: Yeah, Count St. Germain lives in, like, the Beast's Castle from, like, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast.
1: (laughs) I was also thinking, um, Turhan Bay's mansion from, um, The Amazing Mr. X.
0: He's also got a bit of, um, Dr. Pretorius from Bride of Frankenstein going on. He's got his little collection of homunculuses. Homunculi?
1: Yeah, in, like, little glass jars. Um, but... So we don't actually ever see her meet the Count. She goes into a room that's completely black, and the door closes behind her, seemingly by itself. And we hear her scream, and then we cut to the horses of her carriage, whinnying like, scaredly. Like from Young Frankenstein. Well, this it's more young Frankenstein from this.
0: Sure, sure, but you know, <laughs> I'm just saying if people are trying to think of like what noise they're making, it's it's you know,
1: it's like the screech, like yeah. high pitched scream that that horses yeah. make. But it it's well done and it's like very eerie.
0: Yes, yeah, a lot of that stuff is really good at immediately setting a mood and also immediately telling you like, hey, this is a horror movie because I think in the 1940s. Nothing signals, like, no, but this is a horror movie, quite like someone having a room full of, like, smoking beakers and flasks, basically.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: Count St. Germain is, like, yeah, like Dr. Pretorius. He's, like, a weird, like, alchemist, mad scientist. Um, He has no lines. He's just, like, a presence, uh, which is pretty cool. The entire ghost sequence, where the Countess's ghost goes to see German, is really like a tour de force. It's a really fantastic scene, all with not showing the ghost herself, Uh, really incredible use of visuals and sounds, as well as a really good build-up from the kinds of things that you could go like, oh, well, that's just the wind, to, no, this is undeniably a poltergeisting that is happening here. It's a really good, like, ramping
1: up. I think what I appreciate, too, is obviously evidence that there's a ghost, Mm -hmm. and the ghost is doing supernatural revenge Mm -hmm. on German, but I think you could also make a case that there is no ghost, that it's not supernatural, that it's all in German's head because of the guilt that he has over being a murderer, and, like, the ways he tries to justify it to himself.
0: Yeah, I think, if I remember correctly, like, the short story has that kind of ambiguity to it. Yeah. Um, or at least, like, people who have analyzed the short story over the years believe that it has that ambiguity to it.
1: Here they would definitely... that they achieved that ambiguity very successfully. Because well, you never see the ghost, um, and he's been drinking that night. After we've he- heard the ghost he kind of, like, snaps out of it and his room is exactly the same as it was before the, like, poltergeist poltergeisting.
0: Yeah, I mean, which could be, you know, the ghost is supernatural and everything's yeah. the same, like in fucking Christmas Carol where he wakes up and, oh, the bed curtains are still here or whatever, right?
1: <laughs> I haven't like, missed it. Yeah,
0: but, you know, or maybe there is no ghost. Now, personally, my interpretation of the movie is that there is a ghost. Yes. But... You mentioning that, like, maybe it's just all in German's head brings me to something else I really appreciate about this movie over the 1916 version.
1: Which is? Which
0: is, this movie does a much better job with character motivation. Yes. So, for example, it answers a ton of questions that I had watching the 1916 version with really good answers. So, like, why does Gehrman care so much about winning and money and cards? Well... We learn that, you know, he's very ambitious. Um, He has a fucking painting of Napoleon in his room. And a
1: bust of Caesar.
0: Which made me have to look up, like, when did Napoleon invade Russia? Uh, Six years after this. So, okay. He's not, like, a weird traitor, you know? Like, he's not, like, a weird... I'm not supposed to think he's, like, a weird double agent or something. Um, But clearly he's, like, an ambitious dude who, like... He
1: says several times that he wants to take life by the throat, to demand what he wants from life.
0: But the movie also, like, goes to pains to explain, like, he's a captain in the Engineer Corps. All of the other guys who are at the gambling den are in the Royal Guard. Everyone at the Royal Guard, like Andre and the Countess's grandson and everything, are all in, like, their 20s. Whereas this movie doesn't try to, it doesn't pull like a Paul Wigner. It doesn't try to pretend that Anton Walbrook is in his 20s. It's like, no, he's clearly like in his 40s or whatever. And it's like, he's only a captain in his 40s. And he's probably never going to rise anywhere higher. And it's because he is not noble born. He doesn't have money. He's not Russian. He's not in the right like career track. But he's this super ambitious guy who's like, Oh, Napoleon was a general by the time he was twenty seven or whatever. And so it's really clear that like it's not so much I wanna win money gambling, it's I want to exceed my current station in life, and this is mm-hmm. the only way I can see to do it.
1: This movie also takes time to give Liza some kind of motivation. They don't like fully develop her, um, but What I mean to say is that, like, they explain both in the script and visually how she could fall for German, even though it's just these letters. Um, I didn't mention it because I had to look away, but they had um, a moment where Liza's reading German's letters and we get, um, is it double exposure?
0: It's a super imposition of, like, a web over her with, like, a spider crawling up it.
1: Yeah, um, and it's a real spider. It's not a dinky dollar store spider like the 1916 one.
0: Right. And it's also, like, a visual metaphor that makes sense now because it's she's falling into Gehrman's web. Yes. But, yeah, I think you're right. Like, Liza gets much more of a character arc in this. I mean, in the 1916 version, it was kind of clear, like, okay, well, you know, she's this young girl who has to spend all her time with this, like, old woman and can't really do anything, and now there's this, like hot, young soldier sending her love letters. uh, Because, like, 1916, Gehrman is, like...
1: Young and handsome.
0: He's, like, Russian Conrad Veidt. Whereas, like, 1949, is like, this kind of, like, weird middle-aged guy. I mean, still handsome, but, like... Paul Wagner. Yeah. (laughs) So, but it makes a lot of sense because we see just how, like, shitty she's treated by the Countess. Yeah. And we see, like... You know how bad her day-to-day life is and we see how isolated she is and the thing is is that Andre who meets Liza through being friends with the Countess's grandson he actually does fall in love with Liza but he's friends with Garmin so Garmin's like oh I'm trying to write these love letters uh, how would you write love letters to someone you were in love with and Andre gives him these like long florid speeches about how he feels about liza and german's like yeah that's good that's good keep going and like uses those for all these love letters so she has a much better arc so in the 1916 one german goes to her after the countess dies and is like hey so i think i killed the countess and then we just never see liza again and this version it's like he's kind of almost talking to himself and he's talking about how he's killed the countess and how he lied to her and how nothing about anything that she thought was going on was true. And he just was using her to get to her secret and all this kind of stuff. And she has like a major breakdown because like, you, like, of course you would.
1: Yeah. Like, and, I don't know. Like, he, and like, he's just in shock, just kind of ram- yes. rambling to himself. Um, and she puts things together too. So she's not just being told and then reacting. Like you see that she's interacting.
0: Yeah. And, and by, you know, having her kind of put it together herself, you can see the, the yarn, Gears. the yarn unwind in her brain. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like if your significant other came to you in the middle of the night and was like, hey, so your mom's dead. I killed her uh, because I was only dating you to get to your mom's secret money. Like, what?
1: <laughs> That's a, a dark turn on the Jessie's Mom song. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, other things that this movie does a much better job of explaining, uh, why did Count St. Germain give the Countess the secret to the three cards? Well, it's because it was in exchange for the Countess's soul, which he then kept in a wax figure of the Countess in a glass jar, <laughs> because he has a collection of souls that he keeps in wax figures in glass jars at his house.
1: You know, it's a motivation.
0: Also, why does the Countess not tell Germain the secret when he asks? Well... Count Saint-Germain swore her to secrecy. And, like, he's got her soul. And one of the things that this movie does is establish that the Countess has regrets about this deal because she prays to the Virgin Mary for forgiveness and mercy every night. Because the thing is, if she's sold her soul to Count Saint-Germain, like, she's not...
1: Going to heaven.
0: Right. Uh, So she's terrified of dying with this, like mark on her and she won't tell Garmin the secret. And Garmin even tries to get it out of her by being like, I'll take your sin onto me if you tell me. Uh, And she dies. But then this also explains why does her ghost tell Garmin after being so obstinate in life? Now, obviously you can have the explanation like, well, because she's going to get a revenge by screwing him over. But like in the 1916 one, she's like, Oh, I've come to you against my will. And you're like, okay, so what the fuck's going on? Well, here it makes a lot more sense because basically Garmin had made this offer to take her sin upon him so she could, like, go to heaven or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ghosts exist because you have, like, this unfinished business you need to wrap up on Earth. So by telling him the secret, that lets her pass on? Yeah. So that all makes sense now. Um, So all of these are questions I had watching the last movie that... Were answered here. Even the Pharaoh game made more sense here. It, I think it's it's being played the same way it was played in the 1916 version. I just was able to follow what the fuck was happening a lot easier uh, in this one. It's not about like you say when and get the dealer to stop when he's pulled up your card because that's not a game. It's you pick a card, the dealer picks a card, and then the dealer's drawing into two piles: your win, my win. And if, like, your card shows up in the your win pile, you win. And if, you know, it's just whoever's card shows up in the right pile first. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, a lot of the reasons why it all makes sense now is because it's in sound. Mm-hmm. Um, silent films, you know, they only have, they're kind of, like, operating with one hand stuck behind their back.
0: Mm-hmm. Especially with, like, complicated exposition.
1: Yeah. So, I think the nineteen sixteen version did a good job. I, I don't want to like mm-hmm. belittle it because I do think it was a very good movie i i But I do think that the nineteen forty nine film is a better adaptation. um They've expanded it in a way that feels very natural, that feels like it's deepening the story, deepening the themes, deepening the horror without feeling like we're padding time
0: right. I mean, the other thing, of course, is the 49 version is longer, so it has a bit more time to go into these things.
1: Um, It's only like 30 minutes longer, so it's like an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a little weird to me that, like, rather than hear the whole story of the Countess from her grandson, he, like, hears the rumor from the grandson, but then gets, like, the full story from this weird book, from, like, an antique bookstore. But I guess it makes more sense that, like, she wouldn't go around telling everyone, but, you know, you'd have these, like... Rumors. Yeah, these rumors, and then, like, these sort of... Because the the fun thing in the book is that, like, she's not actually mentioned by name. It's like, ah, this one Countess, and then he's putting that together with the rumor he heard from the grandson, right? Yeah. I think the other thing this movie handles a lot better than the 1916 version, which I had some problems with in that version, is German's descent into madness.
1: Yeah, I feel like... Because the 49 version doesn't have that break happen when the card is switched, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot more believable, and that descent can be milked longer for more horror. In the 1916 one, it, it happens quickly, and then it's quickly over. It's like the last five minutes. But here, like it feels like it starts right even when Gilman is begging the Countess for the secret. Like, you can see the rumblings of it uh, in that scene. You can see the rumblings of his madness when um, he's basically confessing to Liza. So by the time that he gets to the point of the card was an ace, but now it's a queen, but now it's an ace again, when his like vision is going in and out, it's believable, but also it allows them to have that kind of quiet madness. Exactly. No, he's so fanatical leading up to it. And then suddenly, like, the end, he's just broken, and he's just quietly saying the, the three-card secret to himself. So that um, contrast underlines the horror even more.
0: Yeah, in the 1916 version, like, you know, when the Countess dies, he's kind of like, Oh, shit. Huh. Well, what do I do now? And then he, like, goes to a bar, he drinks, and he's like, I guess I'll never learn the secret. And then, like, the ghost comes to him, and he's like, Oh! Shit, a ghost. Okay. All right. All right, secret of the cards. All right, let's do this thing. And then, like, he plays his games, and then he loses, and then he's, like, back at home, and he's like, gosh, how could I have lost? Oh, oh, I'm trapped in webs and shit. Ah, and then suddenly he's in an insane asylum with, like, five, a 5 o'clock shadow, like, oh, 3, 7, hey, 8, Sarah! like, very crazy. And the thing is, is exactly like you're saying here, It starts with the Countess's death because in this version he has, like, guilt and other human emotions. Yeah. And, like, you know, then you have the funeral that, like, freaks him out. And the ghost visit severely freaks him out, too, instead of just being like a, oh, yeah, ghosts. Yeah, that's reasonable. The card game itself has much larger stakes now because it's one card game instead of a succession of three. It's against this character who now is, like, a antagonist for Gehrman and it's this thing about like you know almost uh, a battle for like of good and evil with like this guy who's trying to stick up for Liza and really stick it to Gehrman who he sees as like an asshole and Gehrman's trying to stick it to like the rich nobleman and he's doubling his bet every time so that like the stakes of that third hand are like you know, he's not only just losing all his money, he's losing money that, like, he didn't have when he started. Yeah. Right? And so when he loses, it's like, you haven't just lost everything, you've lost everything you you won today, even. Like, it's it was not only all for nothing, but you're actually worse off than you were when you started. And so it just makes way more sense that he becomes this shell of a man. And the whole thing about, like, repeating the cards over and over makes way more sense because it's like,
1: Trying to make sense of where you went wrong.
0: Yeah, rather than this, like, kind of manic sort of thing.
1: Yeah, like hyper-fixation versus manic.
0: Speaking of Andre, um, I think taking Liza's little epilogue ending from the short story and expanding it out to this, like, entire subplot so that the dude she ends up with who's, like, her consolation prize dude at the end of the short story is, like, a character throughout yeah. and can be this antagonist for German. Um, is a really great choice for how to expand a short story out to a feature length without feeling like you're either dragging stuff out or adding a ton of filler or, you know, just making up nonsense that nobody cares about.
1: I felt like it gave the film focus because it wasn't just, what is German going to get up to today? Mm. It was like him facing off in competition for Liza with Andre it was facing off with, like, Andre became the face of who we are working against, even in as basic terms as the final card game.
0: Right, and it also gave the film, like, a little bit more focus in terms of making it clear that, like, Gehrman's morality is bad. Um, You know, talking about his descent to madness being better set up, like, yeah, it begins with the Countess's death, but, like, the movie does a really good job of planting early, like, this guy has problems.
1: Yeah, he's not a good guy. He he's frustrated with the world that his attempts at agency are not going the way he wants them to.
0: Yeah, and so he wants to make the world give him what he feels he's owed, right? Like he's in 1806 in St. Petersburg, you know, he's going to go win at some cards and frighten an old lady to death. In like 2020 in America, he would go like shoot up a church. Like, he's that guy, right? He's this, like, frustrated, middle-aged white guy. And the thing is, like, in the 1916 version, Guerman's moral fall is a bit unclear. Like, it's clear that it's supposed to be, like, a morality tale ghost story. But it gets a little muddied because in the 1916 version, Gehrman's a dude who doesn't gamble because, like, oh, I wouldn't risk the necessary on the superfluous, And then he hears about some witchcraft that guarantees winning at gambling. And he's like, oh, shit, cool. And then he gains the secret to said witchcraft. And then he gambles. And then the movie tries to be like, oh, he got greedy. Gambling's a sin. And it's like, well, listen here, man. Like, he only started gambling because he had, like, a surefire way to win. Like, it's it's hard to judge him as being like, oh, he got greedy and, and gambled too much, or whatever, when, like, he had magic and shit. <laughs> um, whereas here, it makes clear from the beginning that German's flaw is his obsessive nature, and that his ambitions outstrip his means, and that this is where his downfall is coming from, not like, oh, he was... J- just a case of, like, oh, he was greedy. Yeah. Right? And so... All of that is far more focused. His character flaws make more sense. And giving him that rival also creates this interesting structure where, like, our protagonist is a piece of shit. Yeah. And our antagonist is, like, the white knight guy. And it's just, like, it it ends up creating a structure where, like, you know, Gehrman's this, like, frustrated, um, what's the word? Incel? Incel. And, you know, Andre's the, like, oh, you're such a white knight. Blah. And, like... It's a lot more psychologically understandable today, here, in 2020, than, like, oops.
1: Oops, I gambled.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you want to move on to ranking? Uh, well, I just wanted to take
0: a moment to say um, the movie has really great performances all around, but the standouts are Anton Walbrook and Edith Evans.
1: That would be German and the Countess? Right. Yeah, I would agree. German
0: is a very similar character to Baldwin, who we saw Walbert play in the 1935 Student of Prague.
1: He's much better here.
0: He is much better here with German. And part of that may be thanks to 14 years more acting experience. But what's interesting is I think like German is supposed to be in the short story a young character like Baldwin or like Andre in this movie. But what I liked about this version is that It didn't try to pretend like Anton Walbrook was still in his 20s and in fact used his higher age and took it into account and had it enhance his motivation because his frustrations about being so low on the totem pole come out even more when it's like, oh yeah, I'm like 40 and I have not, like, I can't progress past Captain. And these guys, these kids who are, like, 20-something will, like, oh, my grandmother's the countess of blah, 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 so I'm going to be a general when I'm 32. Like, it, it makes his frustrations make more sense, and I think it's really clever to use his age in that way and acknowledge it rather than try to pretend it's not there. Yeah. I think with Edith Evans, it would be tempting to dismiss what she's doing as just kind of like an old lady shtick, but she's doing a lot of subtle acting work to tell you that there's more going on with the countess underneath the surface than what you might think from her like surface level reading as just this like bitchy old woman.
1: Yes, you really do get the feeling of her being terrified of being alone, but also being of dying. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and you also get the feeling like she's a lot sharper than she's letting on. Yeah. And that, like, she has a much greater understanding of what's going on than, like, she's letting people think. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this was a really good movie. I do think it does prove the trend, however, that horror elements in the late 1940s are being seen mostly in combination with other genres rather than being, like, the total focus of the movie because this is still, like, you know a period costume drama and like a has like a romance thing and has like you know these other kind of elements that are worked in here um with this like historical russian stuff and and so on
1: yeah it's not like that pure unfiltered horror
0: right yeah like we aren't going to like count saint germain's laboratory The story isn't about, like, what happens with those, like, wax figures with people's souls in them, you know? Yeah. Like, the horror is woven into the story uh, with other elements.
1: Yeah. Well, how would we weave this movie into the list?
0: Where were you looking on the list, Sarah?
1: I think that this is a very good horror movie. I really enjoyed it. So I started looking pretty high on the list, and eventually I settled in around the area between The Body Snatcher to Return of the Vampire. So that's 13 to 20. I felt like The Body Snatcher is better than Queen of Spades, it's more fully horror than this kind of mixture, but I do think that The Queen of Spades is better than The Return of the Vampire, which was quite a good movie, also set in Britain. You know, still British, but I do, I do think that Queen of Spades is better than Return of the Vampire.
0: Okay, I was worried about having a really wide range, but you are so far above me and my range that I think that's going to be more the problem. Oh no! So, I, I, to be fair, I would like listeners to keep in mind, we have 143 films ranked on the list right now. So just keep that in mind here, because I did really like this movie. But when I started the process of kind of ranking it, the first movie I looked for to compare it against was the 1935 Student of Prague. I thought that was like a very comparable place to start. And I think this was better than that. As we discussed, I think Anton Walbrook is better in this movie than he was in that movie. And this movie's also a little more honest about the supernatural elements. You might remember that the 35 Student of Prague tried to like downplay that stuff as much as it could yeah um so i thought this was better so i worked up from there and the first place where i thought "Mm, i don't know was this versus murders in the room morgue at 63 i thought maybe murders in the room morgue was better than this because although murders in the room morgue you know has the kind of like college kids on a picnic sequence when it goes for horror it goes for horror in a much more like really brutal way than this movie does so I made that my floor and I continued to work my way up and I stopped at number 40 The Black Room which I thought this could be better than just on a pure like technical filmmaking level but right above that is the 1926 Student of Prague which I liked more than this movie. I really like the 26th Student of Prague. I think it does a lot of really cool stuff visually and with its special effects and with, uh, you know, Conrad Veidt. Um So I kind of ended up, like, having this range that was going between those two Student of Pragues. Uh, the 13th Student of Prague is also, like, in here somewhere in the middle. Um, so my ceiling was number 40 below the 26th student of Prague, which means that uh, your floor was number 20.
1: Yeah, so right in the middle of our ranges is the uninvited, which is a good thing to compare this to, because they both have real ghosts.
0: But do you prefer seeing the ghost or not seeing the ghost?
1: I... You know, I I thought it was neat that the Queen of Spades tried to have that ambiguity, tried to, like, spook you without seeing it. As we've seen with Val Luton films, it's sometimes even scarier to not see the object of horror. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have to give props to the uninvited for having multiple ghosts, Mm -hmm. having multiple ghost moments, and having... A ghost right up front, right in your face, and having that ghost be Elizabeth Russell. Yes.
0: Also, I think, I might be wrong, I think the Uninvited was our first real ghost.
1: Um, yeah, I think that is true. So it is kind of neat, you know, comparing the two, but I would still have the Uninvited above the Queen of Spades, so looking between 30, our new ceiling...
0: Well, so I agree with you that The Uninvited should go above Queen of Spades. Especially because, like, right above that we have movies like Seventh Victim and Vampire. Right below The Uninvited is Dead of Night. And to be honest, I'm willing to come up here, like, above my ceiling. Because the thing about Dead of Night is it's really good and I really like it. It's also super uneven. Mm. And if there's something to be said about Queen of Spades... It's that it doesn't have, like, a weird 15-minute sequence about, like, two weirdos who golf and, like, golf to death over, like, a girl and then, like, ghost steal their buddy's girlfriend and, like, whatever the fuck that story was. Yeah, that was messed up. So I'm perfectly willing to put this above Dead of Night and below The Uninvited.
1: I love it. Let's do that.
0: All right. Entering the list at the new number 31 is The Queen of Spades from 1949, directed by Thorold Dickinson.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box there. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene.
0: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to us on whichever podcasting app you prefer. And if you'd like to give the show a helping hand, you can write us a review or leave us a rating on whichever app you use. Ratings and reviews help the show get seen by new listeners, but a more direct way that you can help the show get seen by new listeners. Is by telling folks about us, whether that's sharing the show on social media or talking to people and, about it. Oh, social distancing though. Sharing the show on social media or. There you go. Just over the phone,
1: maybe? Yell at your neighbors across the street. You know, you've seen those videos of people like singing at, at their balconies. Just play the podcast really loud.
0: Get a small little mimeograph and start like a zine going around your neighborhood. <laughs> Like, yeah, just don't tell people about it in person, or or if you if you I must like be at least six feet apart. Right, yeah, just keep that two meter distance between you and people when you tell them about the show. Yeah, or you could also really just head over to Patreon.com/screamscenepodcast and kick in as little as a dollar a month to become a patron of the night. Patrons at five and ten dollar levels get access to all kinds of bonus content, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of hundred and fifty dollars a month, we'll start doing bonus episodes. One bonus episode per month on horror-adjacent movies, uh, which means movies that sort of have some horror flavor but maybe aren't quite all the way horror, like 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein or... Contagion. Right, from 2011, which is a really great movie. Not quite horror, but certainly applicable uh, in these... Um,
1: horror-adjacent.
0: Times that we live
1: in. Oh. Um, <laughs> And after- Sometimes we're so close, we finish each other's sentences. We almost did it.
0: So, <laughs> we all need a little bit more entertainment that we can enjoy at home without having to go anywhere. So, more podcasts are a good thing. So, hitting that goal would be really great because then you would have more Scream Scene to listen to every month. So, that's patreon.com slash Podcast.
1: Um do just want to say thank you to all of our patrons. Um, it's going to be a time uh, for the next few weeks and months of everyone kind of tightening their belt. And yeah, it's, it's a scary time out there. And we appreciate you putting scariness into your ears. Thank you, thank you. Um,
0: yeah, and, and if people need to, like, lower their pledge level, that's totally cool.
1: Absolutely. Even if you need to leave and come back when things figure themselves out.
0: We really appreciate you. Absolutely. And we we thank you so much for the support. Uh we hope you are able to continue that support.
1: Absolutely. Continuing it right into next week when we will be watching yotsuya Kaiden. Oh
0: we are going to Japan, Sarah.
1: This is our second second Japanese
0: Japan? film, yes. Uh, for a nineteen forty nine adaptation of a absolutely classic Japanese ghost story uh, from Japanese theater that is, like, constantly performed on the Japanese stage. Like, you know, if it was a time when theaters were open, you could, you know, throw a dart at a theater in Japan and it would be playing this show. And it's been adapted to film many, 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 many times, including several times before 1949 It's just that there were some things going on in the 1940s in Tokyo interacted with the properties of nitrate film in such a way that there are very few Japanese films from before around 1945 that are extant. So this is the earliest adaptation of Yotsuya Kaiden that we will be seeing on the show, but I'm really excited to watch it.
1: Great. Well, we will see you next week. Creatures of the night. Sayonara. (laughs) Bye.